Good morning. Uh, it's really good to see you here this morning, uh, especially if you are a visitor or if you're with us for the first time, you are uh, most welcome here at Strandtown this morning. Um, if you do have a copy of a Bible open in front of you, please do keep a finger in there at uh, Hebrews chapter 7. That's where we're going to be spending our time this morning. And uh, I'm going to pray for us just before we start uh, to ask for the Lord's help uh, as we open his word together. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity this morning to worship you, to meet as your people uh, before your words. And we pray, as Jeremy Lord has just prayed, we pray, Lord, please would you speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would be built up to become more and more like the Lord Jesus, that we would understand what your word has to say to us today, and that we would be obedient uh, to you as a result of hearing your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before she retired, my auntie uh, used to work as an HR manager for the civil service here in Belfast. And one of the most significant roles that she had was to be a mediator between people, to handle disputes whenever people fell out with each other. And so quite often, one person might make a complaint against somebody else. It might be because uh, verbal abuse happened, or one person thought that they had been discriminated against and maybe passed over for a job promotion, something like that. And so my auntie would bring together these two parties and seek to resolve the dispute. And so in a nutshell, what she did as a mediator was that she met with both parties, she listened to both sides of the story, and then she communicated with both of them to work towards a resolution. Now, why are we talking about mediation here this morning? Well, it's because that is exactly what uh, the priests in the Old Testament used to do in the nation of Israel. They too were mediators. Now, it's not exactly the same as my auntie in the civil service, of course, but God had a similar kind of relationship with his people. What God did, because uh, the people of Israel rebelled against him, sinned against him time and time again, and so what he did was he set aside a special group of people called the Levite priests. They were descended from Aaron, and they were set aside by God to be the mediators, the go-betweens in this relationship between God and his people. And so they would speak to God on behalf of the people. They would offer up prayers of intercession, and they would also speak to the people on behalf of God by teaching them God's law. And what's more than that, not just mediation, but they would engage in the process of reconciliation as well, because they would offer up sacrifices of atonement to atone for, to make amends for uh, the sins of the people. Now, maybe you're here this morning and we're used to thinking of Jesus in a number of different ways, aren't we? We think of Jesus often as our friend. We think of Jesus as the good shepherd. We think of Jesus as our savior. We think of him as our, our Lord. And all of those things, of course, are true. But we're maybe not quite as used to thinking of Jesus as our priest. But that's the way that the writer talks about him in this passage today, that Jesus is our high priest. So why is Jesus being our priest such a big focus for the writer here? 
Well, if you've been with us over the last number of of weeks before Christmas, uh, when we've been going through the book of Hebrews, you'll know that the writer is writing to this audience of Jewish believers. They are Christians from a Jewish background who are tempted to fall away from following the Lord Jesus because they're facing all of this hostility and this opposition to their faith. And so they're tempted to think, well, the easier path, rather than following Jesus and being a Christian, the easier path is to just go back to the old ways that we know, the old ways of Judaism. Surely we can just cling on to, hold on to some of those old traditions and practices. Well, the writer to the Hebrews says, no, that Jesus is the great high priest. No one else is needed. You see, one of the temptations for this Jewish audience was to think that, yes, Jesus is our Lord, but he surely cannot be our priest because he's not from the line of Aaron. He's from the tribe of Judah. And so we still need to keep on offering sacrifices. We can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We need to keep on making sacrifices for our sins. Now, for us this morning, you might think, well, that's all very far removed from us. What does that have to do with me? We're not, maybe most of us, tempted to go to the local synagogue and convert to Judaism. But there is always, isn't there, a temptation to fall away from Jesus, to look for an easier path, even including self-justification. And so what we see here from the writer this morning is firstly that he says, yes, Jesus is qualified to be your high priest, to be my high priest, because there's a precedent for his priesthood. A precedent. The last verse of chapter 6 says this. He, that is Jesus, has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now, what is going on here? What is the point that the writer is trying to make? Here we have him introducing this mysterious character, Melchizedek. And he mentions him because the whole thrust of his argument is to say that there is, in fact, a priestly precedent for Jesus. Yes, Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi, and yet he's still qualified to be a priest. And so the question is, who is this Melchizedek? Well, we meet him back in Genesis chapter 14. In fact, that's the only time that we meet him in the whole of the Old Testament. He's mentioned again in Psalm 110. But the first time we meet him is this interaction that he has with Abraham. Abraham uh, takes 318 of his own men. He goes out and rescues his nephew Lot, defeating several of these powerful kings. And then what happens is this really interesting exchange, only two verses, where this king and priest, Melchizedek, comes and meets Abraham. He gives him bread, he gives him wine, and then he prays and blesses him. And as quickly as he appears onto the scene, he then disappears. Who then is he? 
Because there is very little that is known about Melchizedek, there's actually quite a lot of speculation as to who he might be. And really that speculation falls into two camps. On the one hand, there are people who say that Melchizedek was an actual appearance of Jesus Christ in the flesh in the Old Testament. And there are others in the second camp who say that no, Jesus, uh, sorry, Melchizedek was a pointer towards Christ, a type of Christ. But he was a real human being who really lived thousands of years ago and who really was the king of Salem. Now, I'm convinced, actually, that it is the second option. I think we're meant to see that Melchizedek is a human forerunner of Jesus Christ rather than an Old Testament appearance of him. Why? Well, as we see from this passage, Melchizedek is never actually equated with Jesus. Yes, of course, there are similarities, but they're not the same person. So in verse 3, it says he resembles the Son of God. He's not exactly the same. Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek. Now, another example would be someone like King David. King David was a real human being who lived a few thousand years ago, who really was the king of Israel, and he was a shepherd, but he was a pointer towards the greater shepherd king that was to come, King Jesus. And so I think we're meant to see that in the same way, Melchizedek was a real priest, a real king, and a pointer towards the true priest king to come. Now back to the main point as to why Melchizedek is mentioned here. It's because he himself is a precedent. Just think about the way in which an architect will sit down to design a skyscraper. He or she will put together a sketch. Most likely today it's done through uh, computers, but they'll put together a sketch, a design for that finished project that is to come. It might actually even be years and years before uh, that sketch is put into reality, becomes that finished project. And yet no one would ever say that the original sketch is greater than that finished building. No, it points towards, it resembles the building. And in the same way, Melchizedek points towards Jesus Christ. Briefly then, how is Melchizedek like Jesus? The first way that he's like Jesus is that he's royal. Melchizedek wasn't just a priest, but he was a king as well. Verse 2 says he's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Now, in ancient Israel, those two offices, the office of priest and of king, were separated out. And actually, we are quite familiar with that sort of thing today, aren't we? If you want to stand for election as an MP in parliament, you can't both do that and be sitting in the high court as a judge. Those two offices are separated out. And in the same way in Israel, you couldn't be both a priest and a king, but Melchizedek is the exception. He is both. He's not bound by that rule. And Jesus, as we see in this passage, he is held up as our great high priest, but he is also our king. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 says this, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus has a royal role. So Melchizedek and Jesus, they're both kings. Second, Melchizedek is eternal. He's eternal, at least in one sense. Back in Genesis chapter 14, Melchizedek appears on the scene, but there's no description of who his mom or dad are. Usually in Old Testament narratives, you would have someone introduced 
uh, a character and you'd know at least who their father was, if not their mom and their dad. But Melchizedek is different. Verse 3 here says that he appears with no genealogy. And so it seems as if he is eternal. In fact, not only does he not have any mother or father mentioned, but there's no mention of his death. And so Melchizedek, if you like, in a literary sense, is eternal. As a literary figure, I would want to argue, of course, that Melchizedek was an historical figure. But in a literary sense, in Genesis, he has no beginning and no end. And so what is true of Melchizedek in that literary sense is true of Jesus in a literal sense. Jesus really does have no beginning and end. He is eternal. And so the writer of Hebrews here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is saying, look, here's the similarity, Melchizedek and Jesus, no beginning and no end. And in a moment's time, we'll, we'll think about why that's important. Thirdly, then, he's superior. So Melchizedek has this superior status to all the other Levite priests and even to Abraham, the father of the nation himself. That's what's going on in verses 4 to 10. How is Melchizedek greater? Well, think back to that story in Genesis chapter 14 when he meets Abraham. Abraham is blessed by Melchizedek and Abraham gives him a tithe, a tenth of his possessions. And that was actually the, the custom that would happen later on with all of the Levite priests. The people of Israel would give a tithe to them so that they could um, finance the upkeep of the temple and so on. And in verse 7, the writer here says this, It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. You see, Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel. And not only the father of the whole nation, of course, he's the father of all the Levite priests. And so what the writer is saying is that Melchizedek is above even Abraham. And if Abraham is above the Levite priests, well then, of course, logically, Melchizedek is above those priests. In that hierarchy of priesthood, Melchizedek comes out on top. He's superior. Now, believe it or not, that is all really by way of background. The real meat of the message here in chapter 7 is not, it's not about Melchizedek. It is about Jesus. Because what the writer is doing is saying, look, there is a precedent for Jesus' priesthood. There is Melchizedek, that great priest king, but he in fact is just a pointer to someone even better. And so the heart of the message here begins in verse 11. And in the time that we have left, we're really going to consider this question. Why is Jesus a greater mediator? Why is he the only one actually that we need? Well, it's because he is a permanent priest, a permanent priest. In verse 3, speaking of Melchizedek, it says this, Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning or of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. And about Jesus, it says you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We see that in verse 17 and then repeated in verse 21. So Jesus' priesthood is absolutely secure. Now, a number of years ago, I had the misfortune of having my car broken into. I was absolutely gutted. I came back to my car after being at the cinema and saw that my back uh, window of my car was smashed and broken into. Thankfully, they didn't take anything really of much value. But the greatest annoyance for me was that my window was broken, and so I would need to get it replaced. 
So a few days after that, I went to a car garage, got it fixed, and it was all okay. But I wish that I'd known about this product called Big Tape. There's a product, a company in America makes this tape. It's completely transparent, and it's meant to be really, really strong. And so very often what people do when they buy this tape is they will use it to uh, tape over a, a broken car window to make sure that the wind and the rain doesn't get in. Now, even on the website of Big Tape, you will read that this, they say, is a temporary solution. It's not meant to be a permanent thing. And so how bizarre would it be if I, after I got my car window broken into, if I used this Big Tape and put it on, and then six months down the line, a year down the line, five years down the line, you saw me driving my car with this tape still on my window. You'd think that's absolutely crazy. No, you need to go and get a more permanent solution. And in the same way, the Levite priests, they were a gift given by God, but actually they were only ever meant to be a temporary solution. They weren't meant to be permanent. It was a shadow of something, of someone who was much greater. In fact, one of the purposes of the Levite priesthood was to highlight the fact that human beings are weak and that we cannot save ourselves. That message is really brought home when we read this in verse 23. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. And so under the old system of sacrifice, you would have to go along, offer up your sacrifice to the priest, who then take it to the altar and offer that up to God for sins. But the whole process will begin again the next week because you would continue to sin. So you have to do the same thing all over again and then the week after that and the week after that. And not only that, but these priests unfortunately had a habit of dying. They weren't eternal. And so a high priest would be appointed and he would do the job for a few years, but then very soon he too would pass away. So someone new had to be uh, to come in to replace him. But Jesus' priesthood, the writer is saying, is totally different. Jesus' priesthood supersedes everything that has come before. You see, it's not like the iPhone. I don't know what number we're on now. Is it 13 or 14? It's easy to lose track. But each new update that comes out is then superseded by a new one. It'll last for a year or two, and then there's another one. No, Jesus' priesthood is permanent. Notice where this power comes from. It says in verse 16, the power of an indestructible life. Human priests will fade away. They will be destroyed. They will die. But Jesus will never pass away. His priesthood is based on his indestructible life, his resurrection, and his power over sin and over death. And so his priesthood is not based upon who his great, 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 great grandfather was, that it was Aaron. No, his priesthood is based upon the role that his heavenly father has given to him. His priesthood isn't based upon the bloodline of a human family, but on the blood that was spilt at the cross. And so that is why we have in verse 19, a better hope. Now you might be asking here this morning, what does any of that have to do with us? Well, it means actually that we can always depend on Jesus. In fact, we can only depend on Jesus. It's very tempting, isn't it, to try and depend on other people 
for our strength, to try and depend on other people, even to maybe get us a bit closer to God. Maybe for some of us here today, we're from a church background where it was, it was expected that you would go to a priest or a pastor, that they would be the mediator between you and God. They seem to be holy. They seem to be a man of God. Surely their prayers will be more effective. Or maybe you grew up with the idea that it was a better thing to pray to saints or to Mary, that they would be an intercessor for you. What the writer is saying is this. No, we don't need other mediators. We have a permanent priest in Jesus. But I suspect actually for many of us here this morning, that's not the big issue. That actually the issue we face is that we seek the help of another mediator. Maybe we rely on our youth worker, a friend, a parent, a pastor, someone who we think, I I just need to rely on them in order to get close to God. The author here says, accept no substitutes. But perhaps actually the issue for us is that we feel just a certain reluctance to come to God. That even as Christians, even as followers of Jesus, there can be this distance that we feel between us and God. There is this gap, and we feel at times that we need to close that gap. That we need to do something through our efforts. Maybe we feel burdened by sin. And so instead of coming directly to God, knowing that he always listens to us, we say, God, I need to do something first. I need to spend a bit more time in my quiet time. Just pray a little bit longer before I come to you. Maybe give a little bit more money to mission or to the church before I feel like I'm in that right place with you. Well, as we'll see, this passage deals with that kind of thinking as well because the author shows us that Jesus is not only our permanent priest, but he's our perfect priest, our perfect priest. Verse 25 says this, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. So Jesus saves us completely. And so the message here really is this, that not only does Jesus outlive the other priests, but he also outperforms them. Way, way outperforms them. How does he do that? He's not saved us partially. He's not saved us temporarily, just for a little while. But the word here is actually better translated completely as to the uttermost. There is no stone that is left unturned. There is no sin that hasn't been accounted for, past, present, and future. You see, the idea of perfection in the book of Hebrews generally, and especially in this passage, is dealing not primarily with moral perfection. Of course, Jesus is morally perfect. But it's to do do with that idea of completion. Jesus has completed his task. Back in 2004, you might remember the the Olympics. Uh, Paula Radcliffe 
still was, was and is one of the most accomplished female long distance runners to ever have lived. She was smashing records all over the place and ran one of the quickest marathon times in history. Well, she was Team GB's great hope in the 2004 Olympics. All eyes were on her and people were expecting her to win. She was the favorite to win in the marathon. But unfortunately, about halfway through the race, Paula Radcliffe had to pull out due to health concerns. Now, all of the other uh, racers that day would have, at the end of the race, received a time. But for Paula, unfortunately, she didn't receive a time. She got these three little letters, DNF, did not finish. You see, that is what the Levite priests are like. They did not finish the task of atonement. They could never finish this task because they were never up to it. But Jesus is different. He is like that marathon runner who finishes the the finish line, crosses the finish line, and wins the gold medal. Every last meter he has finished. Every last drop of God's wrath he has drunk down. Verse 27 says this, he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. And so that's why he's able to say on the cross, it is finished. There's nothing left to do. He did it once for all. How can he do it so completely? Well, it's because he is morally perfect. Look again at verse 26 and 27. He doesn't need to atone for his own sins. Unlike those other priests who are flawed, who are sinful, Jesus doesn't need to atone for his own sins. He is that perfect, spotless lamb. But not only has Jesus saved us in that one moment in the past at the cross, but right now he's doing something else. He is continuing to help us by interceding for us. Now his work is completely finished, But that does not mean that Jesus is finished with us. No, Jesus didn't return to heaven and then sit down and say, I'm going to take a break from my ministry. No, he still ministers to us as our loving shepherd king because he's praying for us. Jesus is right now interceding with the Father whilst Satan, whose very name means accuser, Satan is accusing us of our sin and of our failures and our faults. And Jesus, interceding for us, is able to point back to the cross and say, no, it is finished. There is no more, there are no more accusations to face. The work is done. As Dane Ortland says, Christ's present heavenly intercession on our behalf is a reflection of the fullness and victory and completeness of his earthly work, not a reflection of anything lacking in his earthly work. The atonement accomplished our salvation. Intercession is the moment-by-moment application of that atoning work. Now, this doesn't mean for a second that Jesus is the loving, caring member of the Trinity and the Father is the aloof, uncaring one. No, not at all. Because the Father is the one who sent his son Jesus to be our priest. It was his idea, if you like. All of this really is the love of God rescuing us from the wrath of God to achieve the justice of God. That's what the cross achieved. And that is what Jesus is continuing to do for us. Earlier on, I mentioned 
the role of priests in ancient Israel, that they were both mediators and reconcilers. So can you see how Jesus is that perfect high priest? He does both of these roles completely. And that is why actually more sacrifices are unnecessary. In fact, more than that, they're actually an insult to the work that Jesus has done for us because it's suggesting that there's something more that we need to do. There's a painting, hopefully it'll appear on the screen behind me, uh, depicting Jesus. It's called Behold the Man. And it used to be displayed in a little church in a town called Borja in Spain. And it's still there, still hanging there, but it doesn't look quite the same today. Because back in 2012, there was an amateur artist called Cecilia Jimenez, And she decided that this painting needed a little bit of TLC. There was a bit of deterioration. And so she got permission from the priest in the church to touch up the painting. And so she went and got her paintbrush and she began to try and improve this painting. And so stroke by stroke, she added to the painting until eventually it looked like this. Now, this picture, this painting, this story became a viral news story around the world. People had a giggle at it because it was a completely botched job. It would have been far, far better, wouldn't it, if Cecilia had just put the paintbrush down and decided to not go anywhere near it. But when we try to add to Jesus' finished work on the cross, actually what we end up doing, a bit like Cecilia, is we end up making it worse. We end up undermining it because we can never, ever add to Jesus' finished work. What we end up doing is saying, God, no, no, what you did on the cross isn't enough. I need to do something else. I wonder this morning, do we still seek to justify ourselves on the basis of our works? Do we still carry around with us a burden of guilt because of things that we've done or said or thought in the last week or so that we think, I can't quite come to Jesus yet. I need to make amends with him. I need to do something. And actually what we try to do is to add to Jesus' work. If we think like that, then we are drastically undermining the completeness of his work on the cross. Though the fact that Jesus saved us completely and that he continues to intercede for us means that we can let go of all of our guilt means that we can come to God and say, God, I know that I've sinned against you, but I thank you so much that you've saved me. It prevents us from slipping back into that kind of works religion where we seek to justify ourselves. We then end up not living to strive for God's love, but living out of God's love. What's the answer? The answer is for us to stop striving. Stop trying to justify yourself before God. Rest in his amazing grace. Because not only has Jesus saved you, but he continues to intercede for you right now. Isn't that just so reassuring? Whenever we have a particularly bad day or a bad week or a bad month, to know that actually there is no gap between us and God, that Jesus has bridged that gap and he right now is with us and praying for us. Through his sacrifice, As our high priest, Jesus brings us into that relationship with the Father, giving us this privileged access. We don't need to book an appointment. We don't need to speak to a pastor or a priest. 
No, what we need is to come directly into his presence and to know that we've been forgiven from all of our sins. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the fact that you sent your only son, Jesus, into our world to be our sacrifice and to be our great high priest, the one who has saved us from our own sin. Lord, we recognize that we can never, ever pay the price for this ourselves. We recognize as well that many other people, even those who served as priests, couldn't atone for uh, the sins of the people. What we need, Lord, is you. What we need is your perfect sacrifice. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you live to intercede for us, that you help us moment by moment by the power of your Holy Spirit to know that we've been forgiven. Father, we thank you that this forgiveness is total. All of our sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven at the cross. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to do something just um, slightly different this morning. Before